You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. things I've realized over the years in studying God's Word is, is the power of redemption. And when you hear that word redemption or redeemed, what, what you immediately think about is that moment you put your faith in Jesus or that moment that you're still wrestling with about whether to, to put your faith and belief in Jesus Christ and come from darkness into light. That, that, that process we often describe as redemption, someone who is purchased out of sin, of course, by the blood of Jesus Christ who, who died in our place. But did you know that God is actively redeeming my past. Now, that stands to, be, uh, stands to be explained a little bit. God has this unique ability to take the mess and the brokenness of our past and the past that he saved us out of, the shame that he took away, of the, the shame of all of our sin and all of our guilt and all that, that was part of our life of being lost. In that moment, we put our faith in Jesus Christ. All of that was forgiven. All of that was removed. We were adopted by God into his family, and we have an eternal home with him where we'll live forevermore. But in this journey that we're walking with Christ, that, that God has this amazing ability to take some of the broken stuff in our past redeem it, purchase it back, and allow us to use it in the mission that he's given us. It's incredible. You know about Moses, right? He's, he grew up as a child in Egypt. There, there was not a greater person on the earth to lead the Israelite nation out of Egyptian bondage than Moses. And you know why Moses was uniquely qualified? Because he knew Egyptian culture better than anyone else did. He lived in it. He grew up in it. He knew exactly how the Pharaoh operated. He knew exactly how his household operated. He knew exactly the gods that they worshipped. There, no there was no better person than Moses than to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. What about, what about David? David spent his teen years out taking care of sheep. And when those sheep were being cared for as a good shepherd, he would protect those sheep from lions and bears and animal attacks. And, and he, would, he would take those bears and those lions and he would basically kill them with his own hands out there as a 15, 16-year-old out, out in the sheep herd. When the day came for a king to be anointed, all the brothers that David had would come far before Samuel and Samuel would go, no, that's not the one, no, that's not the one, no, that's not the one. And he looks at Jesse and says, Jesse, do you have any more sons? And Jesse said, well, yeah, I do have this one, but he's just a kid, right? He's out taking care of the sheep. He wasn't even important enough to invite to the banquet. Samuel says, bring him. They bring him in, and God says to Samuel, that is the king that I've chosen. How could David be a king? If you remember when he stands in the valley of Eli facing Goliath, you remember what he brings up? He says, I'll kill this uncircumcised Philistine. Why? Because I killed the bear. I killed the lion. I killed anything that came near that flock, and this Philistine will be no different. God took his past and used it as part of his purpose and his mission, redeemed it and used it. What about those disciples called by Jesus? Fishermen, tax collectors. It's interesting, the fishermen in particular, Jesus would call them to follow him. And you know what Jesus would say to them? He said, come, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of what? Men. 
tugs their past and says, I'm going to use part of that past, even part of the mess that you were in, and use it as part of my purpose and calling you to do what I've called you to do. Jesus. Jesus grows up in Nazareth. One of the disciples will say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Something great and amazing come out of Nazareth, Jesus Christ the Messiah. And I think one of the reasons he, he is so able to connect with those little communities that he goes to all over the place, Tyre and Sidon and Caesarea and all these little towns, is because Jesus came from a nowhere little town that nobody cared anything about. Why is it that Jesus is so effective in connecting with the lost and the outcast and the broken? It's because he grew up in a community full of outcast and broken people. You see where this is going, right? That God uses that mess in your past and makes it your message today. Paul was warned multiple times by a prophet, by his friends, by those closest to him, do not go to Jerusalem. If you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound. You're going to be arrested. You may even be beaten to death. And Paul says, I can't help but go to Jerusalem because that is God's plan for me. And regardless of what happens down there, God is sovereignly in control of my future and my life. Paul goes down to Jerusalem, as we saw last week. He played along with the plan of the Jerusalem leaders. The church at Jerusalem said to Paul, Paul, there's a lot of issues going on about how you're out there teaching. And there's this rumor being passed around that you are asking Jewish Christians and even Jews themselves to depart from the law. Forget about circumcision. Forget about the Mosaic law. And, of course, none of that was true. But in an effort to appease the crowds and keep something from breaking out, Paul goes along with this plan. Well, how did it turn out? Well, that's what we're going to see today. Not too good. So even after everything Paul's tried to do to appease the crowd, everything that Paul tried to do to, to smooth things over and, and show that he does, in fact, believe that the law of Moses is important, he's just very clear that the law of Moses is not a pathway to salvation. And if you think for a moment that circumcision, keeping the Mosaic law, keeping the Ten Commandments, if you think for a moment that that's going to bring you into a right relationship with God, whether you be in Jesus' day or today, or Paul's day or today, it's still a lie. No amount of good work will ever fix what's broken you. No amount of being a good person is ever going to bring you into a right relationship with God. You see, it seems to me that all through the pages of Scripture, and I think this is what gives validity to the, to the Scripture itself, that, that the Scripture is trustworthy. One of the things that I see is that God chooses the weakest, brokenest, messed up people. I know that's bad English, but track with me for a minute. The most, most broken people, the most messed up people, God uses those people. He seems to want to use the weak he, he seems to go after those who are on the, on the outskirts, those who are maybe a little bit rough around the edges. And, and God not only redeems those people, but he redeems their past. Could you, be, could you be one of those people? Could you be one of those people that maybe feel like you're so broken, you're so far out there in darkness, you're so far in sin that there's no way you could ever come to a place of joy or peace? Or, or maybe you're one of those people who've already experienced being broken, being redeemed, and walking with Christ. Maybe you're, maybe you're one of those people. Not only has God redeemed you, purchased you, but he's in the process of taking that stuff that is in your past and turning it around for something good. Look at what happens with Paul. 
Look at verse, look back up in verse chapter or chapter 21, verse 37. As Paul was brought into the barracks, uh, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and 4,000 men of the assassins out in the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus of Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. So here's what's happened. The crowd has went absolutely bonkers. They have lost their mind. The, the people have gone crazy. And the Jews are stirring people up against Paul, saying that Paul not only denies the Mosaic law, but he has brought a, a Gentile into the temple, which he did not do. What has happened here is rumors have spread like wildfire, and people want to kill Paul right in the very place where he stands. And this absolute riot breaks out. A mob rises up, and they begin to just beat Paul to death right in the street. Now. We've been walking through Acts for a while now. You know this is a common occurrence. But this time, Paul is getting a little bit advanced in age. I mean, his body is not in very good shape, and it's not going to take a lot of beating for Paul to lose his life. The tribune, the officials get involved. They try to break up the mob to get Paul out of this because they don't want a riot to break out. And they get to Paul, and Paul asks an incredible question. Paul says, can I speak to the mob? Now, I don't know about you, but that seems a little bit odd. I would imagine that if you're getting beaten up by this mob and it's all that this, these officials can do to keep the mob back from beating him up, I mean, imagine that they have surrounded Paul. Paul is completely surrounded by people who hate his guts and want him dead. And the officials are outnumbered by the people who hate Paul. And in that moment, the crowd is pressing in. I don't know about you, but if I was Paul, I'd say, get me out of here. Get me to somewhere safe. But no, Paul says to these officials, let me speak to the crowd. Look at chapter 22. Paul speaking probably in Aramaic. It says there the Hebrew language, but more than likely it was Aramaic. Verse, chapter 22, verse 1. It says, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I make to you before you now. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. <clears throat> Paul begins to speak and he says, listen, I know you guys. I know exactly who you are because I used to be just like you. Paul begins to share his testimony. And he begins to tell them that, that he was just like them. That at one point in his life, Paul, who we know at that point to be Saul, was completely steeped in Jewish law. He had been trained and equipped. He had, he had the pedigree. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. He had a Jewish family who gave him all of the opportunities to learn and advance in Judaism. At a young age, he began, began to be very zealous or very excited or very uh, focused on following the law and all the customs of the Jews. One day he gets the opportunity to sit at the feet of one of the greatest rabbis in Pharisee culture, and that was Gamaliel. So Paul is listing out his resume here, and he says, look, I'm from Tarsus. There's a lot of Jewish people in Tarsus. I was one of those people. I was, I was zealous for the law, zealous for God, just as you are this day, and I've been trained by some of the best. Not only that, he says, but I persecuted this way to death, binding and delivering in prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. 
Paul says, not only was I zealous for the law, not only was I zealous for Judaism, but that zeal also turned into deep, deep hatred for people who followed the way. Those who followed this Messiah named Jesus who hung on a cross between two criminals who, who was nothing more than a charlatan and a liar. He was nothing more than a false prophet. And for years, Paul believed just that, that Jesus Christ was nothing more than a fake, a thief. He did not deserve attention. He certainly didn't deserve worship, that he was not God in the flesh, and there's no way under the sun that this man could be the Messiah. And therefore, he pursued those who followed Christ to arrest them, kill them, beat them, curse them. Jump down to verse 19 in this same chapter. Look at what he says here. He says, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. Talking to believing in Jesus. Verse 20, and when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was watching, standing by, approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. You see, Paul admits that he himself is guilty of murder. We don't know for certain that Paul by his own hands, killed anyone, but he certainly does allude to it in his testimonies that he is just as guilty as the ones who are picking up stones and throwing them at Stephen. He's just as guilty in the death of those Christians as the ones who stuck them with a sword, the ones who threw them and threw them in prison and allowed them to starve to death. Paul says, I am just as guilty. Paul the apostle, the one who travels 8,000 miles sharing the gospel, the one who plants 20 churches, was a murderer filled with hatred, filled with bitterness. He was no different than the crowd who's trying to beat him to death in that very moment. As a matter of fact, if, if, if earlier in his life, earlier before he came to faith in Christ, if there had been a Christian like Paul, if there had been a follower like Paul in the street, Paul would have been the first one to pick up the stone. Paul would have been the first one to pick up a block of wood. Paul would have been the first one to kick. He would have been the first one to spit. Paul says, I, am no, I was no different than any of you. How in the world, how in the world could a man like that ever be used of God to the degree that he is, and the degree that he was at this point? Here's something I want you to write down. Paul's past did not prevent Jesus from invading his present. Paul's past did not prevent Jesus from invading his present. In other words, you can take Paul's name out and put your name in. Whatever you've done in your past, whatever brokenness, it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter how far in darkness it was. If Paul, if the Apostle Paul, if he can move from Saul to Paul, if he can move from a person who hates the church to a guy who plants 20 of them, if he can move from a guy who hated Jesus, hated him and would not accept him as Messiah, can come to the place where he can be forgiven of that hatred, set right, and move forward on the mission of God, then there is hope for every person in this building and everyone watching online. Because there's never been a guy more further from the truth, a guy more filled with hatred than Paul. In spite of all that Paul has done against the will of God, the lives he destroyed, the people he hated, it did not prevent Jesus from loving him. It didn't prevent Jesus from pursuing him. Now, you and I, in the world we live in, you know, we, we live in a world now of revenge and hatred. We live in a world right now that is rapidly moving towards if somebody wrongs you, you get them back as soon as you can and you make it more painful than what they 
what they thrust upon you. But in all of Paul's hatred, Jesus still loved him. And not only that, Paul comes to the realization that his religion has failed him. His religion completely failed him. Because though Paul, thought, though Paul was zealous for the law, he was zealous for his religion, that religion had not changed his heart. Isn't it interesting how religion, you can, you can adhere to religion, you can follow all the precepts of religion, yet have hatred so deep in your heart that you're willing to kill someone. I would offer to you that if your religion cannot change your heart any more than that, it's a religion that you don't need to be following. If your religion can't change the inside, if your religion can't bring you to a place where you love the people you hate, that you can come out of darkness into light and the people that you once hated you now love, if your religion can't bring that about, then can I offer to you that it's probably a false religion? There's only one that can do it. There's only one belief system that can bring you from hatred to love, and it's, it's Christ changing your life, the rebirth that occurs, what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. That's the only way. You see, Jesus pursued Paul with his eyes wide open. Jesus knew exactly what Paul had been doing, and yet he loved him anyway. Loved him in spite of himself, and so it is with you. Whether you've come to life in Christ, and maybe you've made some failures, made some big mistakes, and you begin to hear the words of Satan in your head, you're not loved anymore, you've been forgotten about. Well, that's a lie. You know it's a lie. If Paul can be loved and pursued, Christ is still loving and pursuing you. If you've never come to faith in Christ, don't believe for a second that you've gone too far. Don't believe for a second that whatever you've done is taking you too far. Notice what happens next. It says here in verse 6, As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. Paul's traveling on the road to Damascus. You know why he's on that road? He's on that road because he's got documents in his cloak in his possession to go arrest more Christians because he had heard that there was a cell group of Christians there and he was going to arrest them, bind them in chains, take them back, or maybe just kill them, whatever he chose to do. And now while he's on that road following the dictates of his own religion, he comes face to face with the Messiah, the one that he hated, the one that couldn't possibly be the Messiah of the Old Testament. Couldn't possibly be the one that, that Isaiah would speak of, that, that would be the one that would come and lead the nation. It certainly couldn't be this Jesus, but yet he meets Jesus on that Damascus road. And there, in that moment, he begins to realize just how wrong he is. Jesus says to him, Paul, or Saul, why are you persecuting me? I said this back when we were in Acts 9, and I'll say it again. It's interesting to me that Jesus says to Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who was Saul persecuting? Christians. But there's such a unique relationship between God's people and Christ, that we are the body of Christ. Get this, that we are the body of Christ living in this world, and that when we are persecuted, when these people were being persecuted by Paul, 
Jesus saw that as a personal attack to him. That unique relationship between Jesus and his people is so close and so tight and so amazing that when when the church is persecuted, it is though Jesus himself is being persecuted. And he says to Saul, you've been persecuting me. That's going to come to an end. Because all that you thought and all that you believed is wrong. And the only thing that matters in this moment, the only thing that matters right here on this Damascus road is that this Jesus that he's hated his whole life it has, in fact, resurrected from the dead. And folks, that's the game changer of, of all belief systems, that we have a risen Savior, a Savior who overcome death, hell, and the grave. And he has the authority to speak the truth of what it means to have your life changed. In that moment, Paul went from being a hater to a believer. But the process isn't over yet. In that moment, he's, he's struck blind. The light is so bright in that moment. It's in noonday, right in the middle of the day. So this had to be an incredibly bright light. And, and, and from that moment, from this interaction with Jesus, he's blind. He can't, even, he can't even find his way in to the city. He has to be led into the city. And Paul, not only is going to be changed by Christ, but is going to be given a mission, a purpose that is completely different than anything he'd been doing. Just as zealous as he was for the law, he's now got a brand new purpose. Look at verse 9. And now those who were with him saw the light, but they didn't understand. Jump down to verse 12. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law. Here's a man who the Jews embraced. Ananias was a man who had a lot of credibility among the Jews. Now remember, Paul is making his defense among a group of people who want to kill him. So Paul says, there was a guy from among you whom you trust who came to me. And standing by me said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight, and I saw him. And as I told you, all the way back in Acts 9, Paul not only regained his physical vision, but he, gained, he regained his spiritual vision. He's able now to see the world completely different than he's ever seen it before. All the hatred, all the shame, all the sin, all the work that Paul had been trying to do to earn a favor with God, all that goes away in a single moment. And Paul sees with the best vision he's ever seen before. That's what meeting Jesus will do for you. It'll open your eyes. And he says, he says here, and he said, though God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and you have heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. You see, Jesus is never going to just leave you where you are. If if redemption means anything, if adoption into God's family means anything, if, if a new birth means anything, it certainly means that who you once were is not who you are now. The fact that through His grace you were given so much. The fact that Your faith in Christ changes fundamentally who you are. And anything less than that is not the gospel, not the gospel of the New Testament. The gospel of the New Testament says this is a radical change. Paul described it in his epistles this way, that you died. You died to yourself. That you died with Christ on that cross, resurrected to new life. And if the gospel means anything at all, it means a changed life. Fundamentally, 
the, the core of who you are, you are different. The second thing I want you to write down is Paul's past could not dictate his future. Your past cannot dictate your future. That through that rebirth, because you are a new creation in Christ and because you've been forgiven of everything in your past, that by the way, there's, there's nothing back there for you anyway. There's no reason to go back there. There's nothing there but death. If you've not come to faith in Christ yet, the things you're holding on to, the things you're holding on to that you won't let go of, those things are death. And given enough time, it's going to bring death to your spirit and death to your body, and you're going to leave this world unprepared all because you're holding on to dead things. But when you let go of those things, Put your faith in Jesus. You believe in Him. Not only is your past forgiven, but that past doesn't dictate your future. All that Paul had done in the past, hate, the murderous attitude that he had, was all changed, all forgiven at a single moment of time. New life had come to the one who thought that living his life meant persecuting others. Can you see the vast change in Paul's life, Saul to Paul? That's exactly what the gospel does. And anything less than that is not the gospel. It is a radical change in the person. You see, Paul was no longer a prisoner to the law. Paul had spent his whole life trying to keep the law, keep the law, keep the law. He was set free from that in a single moment. And not only was he set free from trying to be a good person, he was set free from his past. Can you imagine what Paul was thinking? When he meets Jesus on the Damascus Road, when he's with Ananias, can you imagine all that was running through Paul's mind? I'll tell you what was probably running through his mind. All of that past. Now he's confronted with the reality that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the resurrected Lord, that he is, in fact, Messiah. And I would imagine that Paul was running through his mind probably the day that he was standing by watching Stephen be stoned. I'd say he's recounting every single moment of every stone and every moan and every groan from Stephen as Stephen sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, that in that moment, all Paul can remember is all of that past pain and that past hurt and that past hatred and that past bitterness. Is that where you are today? That you can't take a step towards Jesus because your past has such, such a chain around you that there's no way you could possibly believe that that God could, first of all, love you, but that God could set you free from that? Well, if God can set Paul free, and if Paul can be a missionary, unlike anything the world has ever seen, then what can he do in your life? What can he set you free from? What kind of life can he give you? Paul's past is not going to dictate his future. Are you tired of the anger and the bitterness and the shame? Are you, just, are you just tired of being tired? That applies both to Christians and to those who haven't come to faith. Maybe you're just, you're just tired. You've been doing and doing and doing and doing and doing. But it seems like with every three steps you make forward, you take five back. Paul has a mission and a purpose, and that mission began on the Damascus Road. Yours Yours begins with a similar experience. Not a bright light shining on a road somewhere. The light has come into the world. For those of you living in darkness, is that faith you put in that light 
Jesus Christ, the righteous, that changes your life. You see, Paul has a new purpose, brand new life, something his zeal and his former religion could not provide for him. I'd like to say that this is going to make everything better. Paul's point in his testimony here is that, that his life has been painful, it's been difficult, but it's all been worth it. Notice what happens. So he, he goes through his whole testimony. He gets down to verse 20 and 21, and he begins to talk about Stephen's death. And he begins to talk about this vision that he had from, from Christ all the way back in Acts chapter 9, verse 26, 22 through 26. We don't have an account of what was said there, but look at verse Look at verse 17. When I returned to Jerusalem, this is in Acts 9, I was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance, and I saw him saying to me, make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they, the Jews, will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in the synagogue, after one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and I beat those. I even stood by while Stephen was being beaten to death. Paul is making his case to these Jewish leaders, but it's when he gets to this phrase where Jesus says these words in verse 21, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The message that Paul says that the Jews have rejected Messiah and that God had told him to go to the Gentiles infuriates this mob. They lose their minds. They get so angry. They begin to throw dirt in the air. They begin to tear their garments. They begin to, to get out of control. And, and the tribune, these officials who are trying to guard Paul, they see what's about to happen. It's about to get ugly real quick. Because how dare this man say that our God, the God we serve with zeal, would send him to the Gentiles. There's no way. This man is a liar. This man is, a, is corrupt. This man cannot believe be believed. He's absolutely a liar, and they're going to take his life right here on the spot. Look at verse 22, up, up to this word they listened to him and then they raised their voice and said, away with such a fellow from the earth for he should not be allowed to, to live. What's, what has he done wrong? He spoke the truth. And for speaking the truth, they want to kill him in the streets and they're, they're determining that he's going to die. And they were shouting and throwing off their clothes and flinging dust in the air. So the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging. Look at that. Is that not the strangest statement? The Romans say, okay, let's, let's take him into custody and let's beat the truth out of him. So they're going to do to Paul exactly what they did to Jesus. They're going to tie him to a post. They're going to strip him of his clothes. They're going to tie his arms to a post. He would probably be in a kneeling position with his back exposed all the way down to his backside. A Roman guard would take a, a cat of nine tails. It's a whip with strips, and each of those strips would have a stone or a piece of glass or a piece of metal tied into the ends of that whip, and they would beat a person, and very few people would survive it. If they did survive it, they were never the same. They would be maimed for life. So in order to get to what the real truth is, the Romans said, we've got to do something. We've got to, we've got to do something radical here. This crowd's going to get out of control. So the Romans take him, they tie him up, and they're getting ready to lash him. It says that when the centurion, I'm sorry, when they, but when they had stretched him out, look at verse 25, stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? In the chaos of this moment, 
The crowd is yelling. They're screaming. People are throwing dirt. They're tearing their cloaks. The crowd is pressing in. Paul is getting stretched out upon this post, and he's going to get beaten to death more than likely by a Roman tribune. Paul whispers or mentions into the ear of the centurion who's probably getting ready to beat him. Hey, is this okay? Is it okay to do all this to a Roman citizen? And in that moment, if you can imagine, the emergency brakes gets jerked up on this whole event. Because you see, it is against the law for a Roman citizen to be treated the way Paul is being treated. It was against the law for, for Paul to be bound. It was against the law for Paul to be accused without a court trial. And it was absolutely against the law to take a Roman citizen, tie them to a stake who's, who's not been condemned to die, who has had no court trial, no court proceedings, and beat that man in a flogging. So at that moment, this centurion hears this. He, he can't believe what he's hearing. Verse 26, when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to them, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Paul said, yes. And the tribune answered, I bought my citizenship for a large fund. So in other words, Paul, how did you become a citizen? They thought this old man, this old ragged man who shows in his body the scars of all the beatings that he's taken all down through his life, he looks like a vagabond. He looks like a guy who's, who's probably homeless. There is no way this guy could be a Roman citizen, and yet they find out that he is. We have no idea how Paul became a Roman citizen. We don't know how his family were Roman citizens. We don't know. There's been a lot of speculation about that, but we don't know. What we do know is Paul didn't buy his citizenship. He got it by birth. That's incredible. It's so unique. Not many people could say that, especially someone like Paul especially someone who was raised as a Jew, who's also a Roman citizen. Very unique. So when the centurion heard this, when he goes to the tribune, they come and they, they ask him questions. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen, that he had bound him. You see, all these guys who are involved in this know that they could be the next ones to be beaten because they've broken several laws here with Paul, all because Paul mentioned the fact that he's a Roman citizen. Here's the third thing I want you to write down. Paul's past becomes a tool for God's purpose. Your past and all that brokenness, stuff that you don't even, stuff you haven't even given thought to, God can take and redeem, turn it around and use it for his glory and for your good. Paul never had an idea that when he was a kid, at being a Roman citizen, that that would ever save his life one day. More than likely, when Paul was growing up, when Paul was among the Jews, he probably never mentioned his Roman citizenship because they would have thought of him as a traitor. Remember all the tension between the Jews and the Romans. Paul probably never even gave his Roman citizen a second thought. But yet God, all the way back, with whatever details within his family, with whatever happened for his family to be able to become Roman citizens, in that moment, God was working all the way back in time, even before Paul was born. Whatever the circumstances was that this family, his parents, became Roman citizens, God was guiding that process so that Paul would be born as a Roman citizen. Fast forward all of these years, being beaten, getting ready to be whipped to death by a Roman guard, only to find out that Paul's a Roman citizen. Now, you could say that's coincidence. I would say it's the sovereignty of God. I would say that it's God taking Paul's past, even those insignificant things that happened in his past, turning it around and using it for his glory. You see, 
it was not God's will that Paul die here. God had already told Paul, Paul, you're going to Rome. Now he's going to go to Rome in chains. He's going to go to Rome bound. He's going to go to Rome as a prisoner, but he's going to Rome. And as Paul is getting ready, as Paul is preparing to go to Rome, and as God is preparing Paul to go to Rome, guess what Paul's going to have the opportunity to do? Share his God, share the gospel, his testimony to leaders and kings, people who have a lot of power. You see, what part of your past, what part of your past is God redeeming? Maybe, maybe in your past you have addictions in your past. And it's something you're, you're kind of ashamed of. You, you don't talk about it much because you've, you've been delivered from all of that. God, God in His sovereign grace and His goodness and His mercy, you don't struggle with that same stuff that you struggle with when you, maybe you were a teenager or in your early 20s. And through God's goodness and His grace, He's delivered you from that. But let me ask you a question. Wouldn't it be amazing if God took that back there and used it in your life as a tool to reach others who were caught in that exact same life? Maybe you've been through a divorce. You did everything you could. And that's still very painful. Did you know there are couples in this church that could benefit from your testimony? They could benefit from what you went through. They can help their marriage to grow and get stronger because of, of what you went through. Did, did you know that when you were bullied as a kid, that people always looked down on you and they always treated you horribly and they always talked about you? You were never part of the in crowd. Then you gave your life to Christ and you haven't thought about that in years. How, how could God take all that pain that's back there and turn it around into something that can make a huge impact today? God maybe has redeemed you from your past and given you forgiveness and set you free. But God is still in the process of redeeming that past and, and putting you in a position to touch the lives of people with the gospel that only you can touch. The fact is, is your messy past can become your message today if you're only willing to allow God to do that work. Maybe, maybe the, really the first step is maybe finding redemption. Maybe the first step in redeeming the past is being redeemed now. Maybe, maybe the, 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 the point of your future, the, the, the place that God is calling you to, what He's asking you to do, starts with surrendering to Him and letting God do the work of that past and healing that past and using that past to reach people today for His kingdom. I don't know where you are, but I believe you do. I don't know where you stand, but I believe you do. I think right now during this time of commitment as we worship together in this last song, I want you to hear the words of this last song the power of God's redemption. Father in heaven, all of this is by your grace. It's not because we're good people. We're horrible, broken people just like Paul was. Some of us still are. Some of us, under the sound of my voice, are still in that brokenness, never been redeemed, don't even know what that means. They're thinking that their religion, they're thinking that their church membership is all that they need, but they've never surrendered to you. They've never believed in you. Father, may they be redeemed today, purchased back, given new life, set free, forgiven of the shame and the guilt of their past, and then their past be used as a tool to reach more people. Father, you're the only one that has the power to do that. Religion can't do that. Only you. Only your grace. Only your mercy. Have your will and your way in this moment. We ask it in Christ's name.
Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist.